Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. I find I'm running into the, the same issues, right? I tell friends of mine who aren't around sport, I say I'm the chef de mission, and they're like, oh, I didn't know you could cook like that. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm hungry. I think we need a chef. <laughs> oh, well, we're talking to a chef today. I know. Yeah, but it's not that kind of chef. I know. We're talking to a chef de mission. And we wanted to talk to a chef de mission because we wanted to find out what the heck do they do? In this role, what if, because, you know, you hear, oh, they are the chef de mission, they are the chef de mission, and you don't even know what they do. So we went and found one. We are talking today with Marnie McBean, who is a multi-medal winning Canadian Olympic rower. She competed at Barcelona 1992 and Atlanta 1996, and she won three gold medals and one bronze. She was supposed to compete at Sydney, but a back injury sidelined her while she was there and eventually led to her retirement. Since then, she went to another games as a member of the media and then joined Canada's chef de mission team for subsequent Olympics in July. She was named the chef de mission for Team Canada at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, which will be her 10th Games. We talked with her about what a chef does. Take a listen. Marnie, thanks for joining us. People talk about, oh, you, hey, you're the chef de mission, but we always want to know, well, what does that mean? What totally. is it you do as a chef de mission? I find I'm running into the, the same issues, right? I tell friends of mine who aren't around sport, I say I'm the chef de mission, and they're like, oh, I didn't know you could cook like that. And they, they think I'm actually cooking for the team. And then I joke that I'm the sushi chef for the Tokyo Olympics. And then I go, no, no. So I'm not the sushi chef. I'm more like the queen. And in that, I mean that uh, in Canada, the queen is the figurehead of our government, but she doesn't actually make any decisions anymore. She just kind of waves and smiles and rubber stamps a lot. And with respect to the logistics and the administration of the Canadian Olympic team, I am the queen. The Canadian Olympic Committee has professionals who have been working on putting together uh, those aspects, like the, the logistics and the admin and operational side of the team has been going for five years. Like as soon as they said Tokyo uh, will host in 2020, there was Canadians who were already on the ground uh, doing that. 
But where I come in, I am officially the head of delegation of the Canadian Olympic team, and that makes me a spokesperson, an ambassador, an advocate. The role I want to play is going to be very um, athlete-facing. So as much as those roles might be um, with the media and with the public responding, I, I think I'm the one who responds until a Canadian wins the first medal. And then from that point on, everyone's going to want to talk to that athlete. And it, it just shifts away from the ambassador and it goes to the actual athletes. But the role I want to play between now and the closing ceremony of the Tokyo Olympics is more a mentor, you know, again, an, an advisor, um, an advocate. I like to think that my role is going to be to help Canadian athletes to go into the Olympics with all of the swagger and confidence that they take into a World Cup or a World Championships or competition environments that they're very comfortable with. I want to help them understand their own ambitions and the, the emotions that go with that. Um, so my role as the, the chef for, for 2020, the Canadian team in 2020, is mentor for those who want it and need it, uh, mascot for those who want it and need it. And then I have people who are like, can you really define mascot a little bit more? It might just be like I'm the, the chief cheerleader. Not everybody wants a mascot. Uh, sorry, <laughs> not everybody wants a mentor. Every, some people are fine. They're, they're in their own spaces, and, and I totally uh, appreciate and understand that. Everybody wants a mascot. Right. <laughs> I have some good pictures of me in a mascot costume from Beijing. That was, I, I put on a really big head, and I had on really funky pants, and I definitely looked like a, a mascot. <laughs> well, when you were talking about mentoring the athletes and the transition from competing at a World Cup to competing at this massive global multi-sport event, what's the difference in an athlete's mental state or like how how is that for them well you, you kind of hit the the first nail with saying it's it's a, a massive um, multi-sport event and the funny thing about the olympics is while the olympics are the pinnacle of sport they're almost never the best set up for each athlete because it is so multi-sport so usually you know, an, an athlete can go into a field of play with an entourage and bring as many people. And, and I, I, I don't mean like entourage, like a social entourage, but for some athletes, that's important to them. I mean, like their massage, their Cairo, their sports psych, their osteopath, their nutritionist, you know, depending on if it's an artistic event, they're like choreographer or whatever they need, like whoever they, they've put around them to help them succeed in a year-round, multi-year, uh, this is their job. This is what they do. And at the Olympics, because of the enormity of it all, there's uh, a limitation by accreditations. And the, the Olympics, the more you get to know the Olympics, is the land of fences. And, you know, your accred gets you through, like an, uh, an athlete's accred gets them through almost all the fences. Uh, a coach's accred gets them through almost all the, the fences. And then all of a sudden, your entourage, we don't have accreditations. The IOC doesn't provide accreditations for everyone. And Canada's uh, lucky we have, um, I would say, a, a mid-size to large mid-size team. And that is where our the, 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 the multiplier comes. Like how many accreds does Canada get depends on the number of athletes we qualify for the games. Uh, and then so you look at a team like the United States, 
And they will generally have, you know, more like 500, 600 athletes at the game. So they're going to get more to creds. So if, if our team sits there and looks, are like, well, how come the United States has more people around them? And, and I, I, half of my entourage is on the outside of the fence. Um, that's, that's one thing I have to get them, like an athlete used to, is that while we're asking them to be the best they've been in a four-year cycle, we're also asking them to be clever in how they access and, and how they have people around them. Because we, in, in no sport can everybody be around. So there's that. That was a really long answer. I don't know why I went into the um, cycle of accreds. But there's also friends and family. You know, I remember I've had many athletes who um, have been world champions going into the Olympics and the friends and family are like, oh, my God, you're going to the Olympics. And you're like, well, I'm the world champion. And people think somebody else goes to the Olympics, right? There's all these World Cups that you've been going to and the World Championships that you've been going to. But the Olympics, like, oh, my gosh. And for some athletes, it's the same thing. They've dreamt of going to the Olympics for longer than they've done their sport. You know, and then suddenly they get to the Olympics and it's bigger and, and people care. And, you know, you have journalists, there'll be 10,000 journalists covering the Olympics. And maybe you get a handful covering your sport. So suddenly all these people are showing up asking you questions that are really uninformed. Um, some journalists are amazing and their level of um, research when they come in and ask an Olympic athlete questions about, so how are you going to do today? You know, how is this going? What do you think about your competition? So, some many, like I'll go with many, many journalists show up and they're, they're really well prepared. But you go to the Olympics and a journalist shows up from a major publication and asks you, so can you explain your sport to me? And, and they, they literally aren't asking it in a, like, I want to hear it from you. They just don't know. And they're asking questions. And, and so you're like, well, this is the Olympics. And why am I giving you my sport 101? So there's all these things that like an athlete is suddenly being bombarded with that can take them out of that, you know, really comfortable approach to, like I said, the World Cups, a really comfortable approach to world championships. And all of a sudden, the Olympics are just, they're a different beast. No, it's just interesting to take that, take it all in and try to think of how much different this circus is for an athlete and and how you navigate it so when when you were an athlete how did you interact with your chef de mission or did you um well when i was an athlete the canadian olympic it was the canadian olympic association at that point in time they, they really hadn't stepped up so the canadian olympic committee i think is amazing and they come in more in a four-year cycle uh, the Canadian Olympic Association, who was supporting me, was kind of a 16 days every four years of care and comfort. So it was really different back then. That said, I remember my first chef de mission was Ken Reed, the alpine skier, one of the crazy Canucks. And it, it was really cool having him, like when we, we got to uh, Barcelona for the Olympics, and we're like, oh, there's Ken Reed. Like, we'd never met him before. I'd never really talked to him before. We, we were rowers, so and rowers are usually, we're a lot like ostriches, and I know it's a myth, but we often have our like head in the sand kind of thing, like focus on our own thing, put our head in our own tunnel, deal with it. And for us, getting to the opening ceremony um, for Barcelona uh, was quite an ordeal. The rowers were staying in a satellite village in Banyolas, which was almost two hours uh, to the north of Barcelona. And so the ordeal we had, you know, we're a bunch of rowers, like all, I think there was like 880 rowers like global rowers staying up in Banyolas. We had to take buses. I think we left at like noon on the day of the opening ceremony. 
uh, helicopter escorts and lots of guns because of the Basque separatists. There's always something going on at the Olympics. But I remember, so, you know, rowers, we were eating like five to 8,000 calories a day. Every meal is super important to us. And this is a Friday night before we're going to start racing on Sunday. And we're like, so there'll be lunch on the bus. There's going to be food on the bus. And they're like, yes, yes, yes. There'll be food when you get on the bus. And we get on the bus. The buses start going for what was going to, should be two hours, but it was a three hour drive. And there's no food on the bus. And we're like, so there'll be food when we get off the bus? And they're like, yes, there'll be food when you get off the bus. And we get off the bus, there's no food when we get off the bus. And we're like, there'll be food in the stadium? And they're like, yes, there'll be food in the stadium. And, and there's no food in the stadium. You can't leave the stadium once you're in the stadium. We're now like coming into that time when they're like the stereotypical, like your, your meal and your sleep before your big competition are your biggest and your most important ones. And, you know, we're, we're going hungry and rowers notoriously don't go hungry. We're not good at being hungry. And so we walked in there and we're kind of panicking and we're um, really already starting to second guess our decision because it was a conscious decision to, to make this, you know, to leave at noon and to be gone for a whole day right before we would start racing at the Olympics. Um, and Ken Reed heard this, and I remember he just went around to all the other Canadian athletes from all the other Canadian sports, and he, he it sounds really simple, right? Like, <laughs> Chef de Michel doesn't always have to do much, but he passed the hat, and he came around to us, and he's like, it's not much, but this is what I got. And the athletes, basically from out of their pockets, because you don't... You can't take a knapsack into the opening ceremony. It was just these tiny little fanny packs. It was so funny because everyone used to make fun of that, but now they're back in style. So I'm like, oh, cool, fanny packs. You know, so we got like nuts and apples and Mars bars and whatever. And so we, we had these snacks. And it was like, as nutritional dinners go, it was kind of a super sh- dinner. But for like feeding the beasts, it was great. And I remember like Ken really... He knew it was super important to us, and so he he sort of banged through the bushes, and he, he came out with some calories for us, and we all had an incredible evening that night at the opening ceremony, and when we started racing on uh, Sunday morning, we were we were rolling. We just we we literally dominated the world from that day on. So the chef de mission, it sounds a bit like it's the class mom on the trip. Whatever needs to get done, yeah, gets done. Yeah, uh, a, a problem solver. I was, I was watching The Crown last night, and at one point, I don't know. At one point, the uh, the prime minister says to the queen, "Is like our job is to wait." When he said something like, um, "Leave less chaos than we started," right? To calm more than we create, and uh, I think that's the the chef de mission's role is to, yeah, be class mom, be a problem solver, do a lot of listening help people anticipate issues and when they come up you know just I, I always think it's I can't make stress go away I don't even pretend to make stress go away I, I never tell an athlete I'm going to make your stress go away but I'm going to help you wear it well I'm going to help you be comfortable in it because uh, stress is really what makes is it's the spice of life and it what's make the Olympics go around and so the more you're comfortable in those situations and the stress that you didn't anticipate the more comfortable you are with like and uh, accepting it and, and ideally anticipating it, but then accepting it and just being comfortable with it. I just want people to have personal best performances as often as possible. So were you able to attend the chef meeting in October? 
Um, I, I didn't. And that was intentional because that goes back to the administration and logistics. So the Canadian Olympic Committee uh, sent the people who have been working on that. Um, those questions were very much about how many beds do we need in the village and what kind of accreds are we going to get and how are those accreds going to work at these games that are different um, from the last games. But I did just go in November. I was I was there less than a month ago. And I went to familiarize myself with Tokyo, get comfortable with the environments. I had a walk through the Olympic Village, got comfortable with the, it's an incredible subway system there. Like, uh, it just, like I knew in Toronto, ours is kind of working on not being crappy, but wow, is theirs amazing. And, and it's so intuitive, holy cow. No surprise, I don't read Japanese. I don't, I, I, I can't speak it, but, it is so easy to figure out their subway system. Um, you know, started getting familiar with the food um, and like even the tourist areas and what is Tokyo. Um, I'll go back again in February for more of an Olympic overlay when more of the venues are available to us and have better access to the Olympic Village. Check out the different, because uh, there, there's, uh, we're going to have uh, satellite villages and sports. Uh, check out those environments. And then I'll be back again in Tokyo for a month in the summertime. So have you had a chance to interact with any of the other chefs? No, I haven't met the other chefs yet. But that'll be fun. My Historically, every time I've gone to a games, I've had rowers, I, I think, rule the world. And, and there's always a rower somewhere. And I, I know I won't be the only rower, rower as a chef de mission. And I'll walk up to probably some of my peers from racing in the, the 90s and the aughts. So uh, that'll be, I, I'm kind of keen to see who they all are. I think Canada, by the way, I think Canada did set... Um, as we do around the Olympics, we we have set the stage for our chef de mission not doing the admin and operational roles. I know now now the Aussies do the same thing, the Americans do the same thing, the Europeans are doing the same thing, and I think that really comes like Canada set a standard. You know, I know it was like I had Ken Reed in '92. Then I know Sylvie Bernier was uh, an athlete chef in 2008. Uh, we've had athlete chefs, I think, ever since Sylvie Bernier in 2008. And it really does provide like a resource for the athletes. And so when we, when we show up, we come with basically some street cred. We literally have had our feet in those shoes and slept in those beds and or not slept because it's the night before the Olympics. So I, I, I think Canada has set a stage for putting more of the mentor type role into the chef de mission than the operation side. So when you're there, do you have, are you working on a game plan to like what, what events you'll be at and, and how you'll get around to different, I mean, like don't, as a chef, don't you want to try to get to ever, as much as you can? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, that's the thing like Kurt Harnett and uh, Mark Tewksbury, uh, Isabel Charré from the last uh, three games that we've had, they're like, this is the most exhausting thing, right? And and I've seen it. I've been in a role on, on the mission team. So this is not my first mission team. T- Tokyo is going to be my 10th Olympic Games. I went to 92, 96, and 2000 and as an athlete. 2004, I was in a media-only role. But from 2006, 8, 10, 12, and 14, I have been on mission team and I have been working with the chef um, and I know how hard it is to get around and, and exhausting, right? There's events like at eight in the morning and there's events now and like starting at 11 PM, right? Like in Tokyo, they'll be starting quite late and getting to all of them is absolutely the goal, right? And as much as they say, what is it? There's 
33 sports, but there's 50 events, right? Because you, you can say, oh, there's aquatics, but nobody goes, oh, I'm going to aquatics today. <laughs> You're going to swimming or water polo or diving or, or artistic swimming, mm-hmm. uh, no longer called synchronized swimming. It's artistic swimming. So to get to those 50, that is like, a logistical nightmare because you also have to deal with the fact that there's Olympic transport. Uh, there aren't going to be Olympic lanes in the same way at, in Tokyo that they have been in other cities. Um, so trying to figure it out. And one of the things I know is you don't always have to get to a competition. Uh, that's awesome. But sometimes going to a training is a better environment to see and talk and interact with the athletes when they're um, on their training or the practice fields. So I'll keep those open, um, already trying to connect with athletes through meetings that we go to, online conversations similar to this one. And then I send out a almost monthly regular email, sort of not quite a blog, but a note. Like, I don't know, if, if you're going to call me the, the mom on the field trip, it's like mom's note kind of thing to everyone. I used to think I was maybe cool aunt, but maybe I've aged into hopefully not annoying mom. But um, you're not a regular mom, Marnie. You're the cool mom. I hope so. But you know, in saying I want to be the cool mom, I become less of a cool mom, right? (laughs) Anyways, so yeah, there's 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 a lot of ways I want to try to interact and connect with the athletes and for sure that it's up to them right I I can put myself out there in in many environments and if their personality is open and curious and this is something they're looking for I'm I love it I'll connect with them Um, I'll even do my best to speak really bad French with them uh, because I think that's important but if they're like, you know what, I'm, I'm good and I don't need more people in my environment and uh, this is my path and I'm comfortable this way and this is how I operate at my best, I'm like, great, then I will, I will leave you to your spaces and I will help you in any way I can. In leading up to Tokyo, what keeps you up at night? What do you think are going to be the biggest challenges? Right now, what's keeping me up is not what's keeping the athletes up. What's keeping me up is to figure out how, how to make a difference with my role. Like I, it was announced that I was going to be the chef de mission in, um, on July 1st. And immediately we were, Canadian team was completely immersed in the Pan Am games. And then we had to come back from that and everyone had to catch their breath. And I, I feel like I'm, you know, in the same way as an athlete trying to prepare for the Olympics, I feel like I'm running out of time because I don't get to come at the athletes every day. I'm not in their face every day. So I want to, I want to make a difference as a chef. Um, and I want to do it in a non pushy kind of way. I want to figure out how to make sure what I'm saying is hitting the right notes and what the athletes want to hear and not what I want to say. So I, I think what keeps me up at night is trying to be a good chef. You know, I, I have, like, I don't believe in saying things like 110 and 120% because 100% is 100%. I have 100% confidence that the Canadian Olympic team and their mission team um, is going to be extraordinary in, in the preparation and their anticipation of needs for games. I know at games, something always happens that you don't anticipate. I think we are world leading in responding to those things and we'll respond to them when they come. But for how to be a good chef that's kind of always a game day at games reaction and how do i step up to it you know just i want to make sure that i provide value to as many athletes as possible 
that is honestly what keeps me up. For the athletes, it's way more um, visceral. It's qualifying for the Olympics. It's being selected for your team. It's showing up at the games healthy. And it's doing the performance they've been training for in the moment that they have, because that's what makes the Olympics a little bit or a lot different is that they have uh, one moment every four years. You know, some athletes, it's there. There's no, there's not even a tournament for it. It's just like, okay, come to the start line, and in X amount of seconds or minutes, you'll be done, and your four years will be over at that moment. <laughs> and there's no do over or you know, it can come and go that quickly. And so we have to make sure everything has been done as well as possible. Believe in perfect, but don't expect it, kind of thing. So you've been part of the chef team or the mission team for many Olympiads. Like, do you start out as a line cook and work your way up? I, when, literally, I did. Because um, <laughs> 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 when I describe, uh, so the first uh, mission team that I, I um, volunteered for was the Trino, uh, the Turin Olympics in 2006. So there I was, uh, a summer athlete, and I volunteered to be it was called an athlete liaison officer which was basically a lounge manager and i was up in sestrier uh one of the there was three villages for those games uh, down in turin up in sestrier and the other one was in barnadega or barnadecchia or something like that and so i had the alpine sports uh some nordic sports um or sliding sports luge so you were you were up in the mountain yeah okay because we've heard a little bit about that mountain village I, I was a little, let's compare notes. Hold on. <laughs> and, and so there I am in the lounge trying to learn all the different sport cultures of winter games, right? Because all I knew was the sport culture of rowers. And in their lounge, and I ended up changing the title from athlete liaison officer to peer performance mentor because that was more of what I was doing. But at the same time, I was just picking up cereal bowls. So, you know, if if you if you're asking me if I started as a line cook, yes. I was picking up cereal bowls for a lot of people. Like I'm sitting there going, I have three Olympic gold and the bronze medal. This used to be my show. The Accred, I used to have the the access go anywhere pass VIP. And now I'm picking up cereal bowls and I'm buried in a, a dungeon in a mountain. So, you know, yeah, that village was very much like living in the Teletubby land. It was every underground little Warrens and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I started picking up cereal bowls and uh, worked my way up from there. What did you hear? We spoke to someone on the uh, American medical team who said the mountain village was questionable in terms of there was no hot food. Some of the facilities were a little not finished. Yeah. The road from the mountain to the the, the main yeah vill- yeah was a little yeah. sketchy. Well, it was hilarious doing that one, right? Because in uh, Canadians knew how much we were investing into the road between Vancouver and Whistler, and this that road, uh, particularly the one that uh, the one going down to Turin was okay, but the one that went around the other side, so you could kind of do a loop from Turin to Sestrier to Barnadecchia to Turin. The one from Sestrier to Barnadecchia, I think it's Barnadecchia. I might, I might be wrong, but it began with a B. The one that was like down the hill on the other side. If a bus was going up or down, it cars would have to back up away from the the switchbacks um like it was like a one bus turn and we had athletes who were being driven by like a a official games volunteer car 
uh, and it, it sort of spun out. They hit a guardrail and they were, they're, they're mountain people from Canada. And they're like, that was like this one of this big, <laughs> they were pretty shaken after that one. And yet, because the weather wasn't great, it was quite warm. Uh, so it was really muddy and slushy. And so people were going in these underground tunnels, which it was like creepy because it was like water dripping through the tunnels. And up in the mountains, the uh, the volunteers, the Italian volunteers, I think they really didn't get in, in down in Turin or Torino, whichever way you want to say it. Uh, the volunteers were great. But up in the mountains, they, they really didn't understand helping out. <laughs> they They just wanted your free pins and they weren't really particularly helpful. Um, but you also learn a lot about it. And, and for the food being cold, well, the food is always cold at an Olympics because everything like summer Olympics, it's cold because, you know, you're being air conditioned to within a, you know, a degree of frostbite. And by the time you sit down from a massive cafeteria, your food has been like frozen. I remember the food up there. Like, yes, that the Italians actually were wrecking coffee and pizza in that village, which you, I didn't think was possible for them to wreck coffee and pizza in Italy. But the pizza was like from frozen, like a caterer serving it and then mostly instant. Uh, so one of my like big success points as my athlete liaison officer in that uh, athlete Canadian athlete lounge was I went out, I very quickly brought us a, bought us a good coffee maker. And so in the Canadian lounge, we had great coffee. I couldn't help them with the pizza. But yeah, this, it was it was a funny place. I remember using the panini maker quite a bit. I made my own meals quite a bit there. Random story. We love random <laughs> stories. <laughs> that is our bread and butter. But it, it did, like, I, I do remember feeling it because it was very underground. I did feel it was like, I, I can't even imagine you've watched the opening of Teletubbies forever. And I don't, I won't, ha- I won't let my daughter watch it because I think it's creepy. Um, you know, the baby in the sun. Uh, but it, it was very much like that. It was very underground and potty and uh, like this pod, that pod. And, and um, it was a bit surreal. If you chose to walk over, over ground, like, uh, like outside, it always felt a little deserted. But despite that, you stuck around. I loved it. I loved it because, you know, in those Warrens and Dens and in that athlete lounge, um, I had a lot of really meaningful conversations with athletes, uh, like countless random flyby conversations with an athlete. Like, how are you doing today? What's going on? Sometimes I remember one athlete, it was a, a young uh, ski jumping athlete and, and a, an athlete lounge, the athlete village itself, but an athlete lounge, it's very much like dorms at a, a college or a university or something like that. Somebody's always up, like somebody's always up. And so there was this uh, young athlete and he was there on like accessing the Wi-Fi in our lounge kind of thing. And it was kind of late and he wasn't doing anything. And I'm like, well, why don't you go and do this in your room? Like, and, and there I was definitely a mom. I was like, you know, like a sort of a magic put him to bed buddy. I'm like, go do this in your room. Um, and if you're tired, go to sleep. And he told me the next day he was asleep within 10 minutes. Right. Like, so sometimes it's just encouraging someone to like take care of themselves and not get distracted by everything that's going on around them. And a lot of these kids are very young. Uh, they can be, but they're also some of them are very old. So that athlete was maybe 17, and in that same uh, the same lounge, we had Pierre Luders at the time, who was maybe 30. He would have been 34, maybe even older than that. Um, you know, you have your athletes who are going around for their fourth uh, Olympiad, 
and you have some athletes who are approaching their first and they're young for their sport. So it's, it's quite a variety. And even the young ones seem like young adults. No one seems like a kid um, at the Olympics. I think sometimes I think Olympic sport kind of blends everyone. Everybody at the Olympics behaves like they're somewhere between 23 and 28, regardless of your age. If you're, if you're 40, you're going to seem like you're 28. And if you're 16, you're going to seem like you're 23. Um, just because it's a different level of responsibility and expectation and you know you you've been focused though all these athletes are are training regularly multiple times a day like four years with a a different sense of responsibility and their ambitions they they resonate just a little differently than their their peers who haven't found uh, what makes their heart sing yet winter versus summer like how are they different and then also like looking at different Olympics, like how much does the host city affect what an Olympics is versus what the IOC makes the Olympics to be? Those are two big questions. Yeah, Um, I know. I'll start with winter versus summer. The professionalism of the athletes, the desire to be better than ever is equal at both games. The complications of a summer games are extraordinary because they are so big, like really, really big and packed. You know, the number of nations, more nations compete at the Summer Olympics than are members of the UN. I think there's going to be over 11,000 athletes in Tokyo. Uh, like we we already said, there's like 50 plus, uh, well, there's 50 events, 394 or something like that gold medals will be assigned. Like they're just so big and diverse. Like it's 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 extraordinary that the world comes together and does that. The Winter Olympics are, you know, they're growing. But even when they made them, like I remember when the IOC made them two weeks, the same 16 days as you guys are like Olympic pros. You're like, oh, I remember that. Um, You know, they added curling. They they had to add sports to fill time, right? Like the summer events, we don't have to add sports to fill time. They're adding sports because the world is maturing and, and there's, or immaturing, depending on how you look at it. But um, the world is getting, there's, there's more source. So the, there's like a lot of time at the winter games where you can breathe and relax and, and kind of get between events. And in the last five days, you're just waiting for, you know, some of the team sports to be done. We're, we always think they're great because we're in hockey usually right to the end. But if we didn't have hockey right to the end, you know, you're just like, what? there's actually a lot of time at, at the end where there's not as much going on. Um, so that, and, and the, the diversity file is a lot lower at the, the winter games. It's just, they, they just haven't gone as global. It's, it doesn't include Central America in the same way. It doesn't include Africa the same way, the Middle East the same way. It's, it's just like almost huge continents aren't represented with the same strength as they are at the uh, Summer Olympics. So that's that's how they the two feel different. Sometimes I think sometimes the summer the summer summer athletes were, were really stubborn. Um, summer athletes try to do everything, kind of uh, I jokingly say the harder way because summer athletes are trying to push things up. Summer sports tend to go against gravity. Um, they try to like lift off the planet and go up things and over things and work against friction 
whereas the winter athletes, they're very clever and they go with gravity and they use friction to their advantage. And then they go and have a beer after. And so if you think about winter sports, um, way more winter clubs, sport clubs, like a ski club or a curling club, they, they have uh, a more social aspect affiliated with them. And uh, so sometimes I have to admit that the winter Olympics, they're a little more jovial that way because that is more in the sport culture. Like they work extraordinarily hard. And then they have this like apres culture that is extraordinarily fun. That said, at the Summer Olympics, there's way less clothes. And so you get to go around and it's you really can tell body shapes. One of my favorite games that you can play at a Summer Olympics that you can't really it's not as great a game at the Winter Olympics is look at that body, what sport do they do? And so you look at legs and shoulders and waists and height and, you know, all these different things. And it's a, it's a great game to play at the, the Summer Olympics. So that's like a comparison of the two. And then for the host city, for sure the host city makes a difference. The volunteers make a difference. Their enthusiasm, their willingness to help out like, I remember, like, we, okay, so we were just talking about the Turin games. Um, I remember one of the first Italian words I was learning at those games was not possible or impossible. Because every time I asked, how do I get from here to there? Or what do I do this? And, and I would have accreditation or a ticket or whatever I needed. How do I get from here to there? And the volunteers were just like, man, it's not possible. And that was their way of saying, oh, I don't really know how. Like, maybe it was a language issue, whatever. But they, they weren't always so helpful. In Greece, um, and I found the same thing um, in some other games, but in Greece, in Athens, they were totally not ready for those games. Like they came in, but you act, ask a, a Greek person, how do I do this? And they just said, come, we go. And they would just take you there. Like, they're like, I don't know how to tell you this, but I can take you there. And they would just say, come, we go. You know, Vancouver, the the joy and the people showing up on Robson Street was just extraordinary. How that city really got behind the games, uh, really started in Canada as the, the torch went across the country and people really bought into it. Uh, like every host city in the world, Vancouver had a huge hate on for the games coming. Uh, you know, it's going to be complicated. There's all these people coming and, you know, it costs a lot of money. And, and then they loved it. They loved it so much. And they loved the the Paralympic Games. And they, they instantly were saying, well, Sochi's not going to be ready. We'll host the next one, too. You know, which I love that article. You can wait for it, like, kind of three months every after every uh, Olympics, following on the heels of all the articles saying we're not going to be ready uh, we're going to be, we're going to embarrass ourselves. The article that follows is, we did that so well, and that was so much fun. Uh, we'll host them again. The next city won't be ready. Bring it to us. Uh, I think Tokyo is going to be amazing. Having just been there, uh, the people are so wonderful. And like I said, I think everything's pretty orderly for getting around. As a th city of 13 million people, it doesn't ever feel crowded because people have a, a su such a respect for everyone's space. As long as we don't bring North American or global attitudes of entitlement into their space, I think the Japanese hosts are going to be incredible. I got to say Atlanta, eh, not so much. So Atlanta, you know, I remember going uh, a year out and uh, it was like this Georgian hospitality, Atlanta, say it like you love it, like, honey, like in Georgia, we just, 
we know hospitality. Hospitality is what we do. Um, but when the world came to Georgia, it wasn't hospitality by their rules. And I think um, the Georgians were getting uh, really frustrated, certainly in Atlanta. They were getting really frustrated with the world because um, it wasn't the civilized sense of hospitality that was on their terms. And it was really complicated games anyways because it was the city had bid or it was a, it was a, it was a private bid, not the city, not the state, not the country what Billy Payne did there. Uh, so the venues were great. The competition venues were great. The connection between all of them wasn't so great. But uh, like, as always, I, there was elements about Atlanta that was extraordinary, but I don't remember the the volunteers and the, the spirit of Georgia really sticking out. So yeah, host city makes a big difference. So something you said about Vancouver really struck me. I remember as as a spectator and watching it at home, the way you describe Vancouver is very much the impression that I had just watching it at home. Yeah. And I'm wondering, of all the games you've been to, do you find that how you've experienced it, and then when you go home and you see how it's being described back home or in the media, seems to match up? Yeah, I think so. Like, if it's been a party, it looked like a party. Like, Sydney was a party. Uh, Sydney was a lot of fun. For me, it was a little unique because I actually had a major back injury there. So I was on a lot of painkillers, but you know, Sydney was a lot of fun and the, the Australians really sunk their teeth into it as it being like a great time. The Greeks, yeah, it, it looked a little unorganized on TV, but have you ever gone to a party at, like in a Greek restaurant or something like that? It's like, it always starts off a little uh, chaotic and then you're there four hours later than you expected to be because you had such a great time. Beijing was the the scale of Beijing was extraordinary, right? Like it was a spectacle to some extent. So was Sochi. Sochi was weird, maybe. Beijing and Sochi were like, like Sochi was an Olympic, it was a winter Olympics on a summer scale, which made it super weird. And it was so warm and there was a lot, it was complicated and it didn't feel particularly Russian in 2014. It felt more Russian. Russian when I went for site visits in 2013. But yeah, I, I think it has been pretty consistent. One question to bring it back to the chefiness of the interview. In your time as being part of the mission team, have you seen programs come out of like those conversations that you've had with athletes or that members of the team have had with athletes to that the, the Canadian Olympic Committee has implemented or thought about because of what the team does on the ground? Oh, 100%. Yeah, uh, constantly. Like, so, you know, I started off as a, an athlete liaison officer, and I told you I changed my name to the peer performance mentor. There, There is a, a constant stream of retired Olympians who are accessible and giving back as mentors now. Like, we, we see that as a value. Like, the um, all of our... We don't even send an assistant chef anymore. We, we send a, uh, the assistant chef in Canada is now the lead mentor. Uh, so we have um, a lot more mentoring programs. And any anything that we find, whether how we uh, create spaces for Canadian athletes, whether it's wellness and quiet areas, how we create environments, how we deliver services and information to athletes, it has to change constantly. So... I think based on what I've done and what other chefs have done and, and how the chefs pass information down from one to the next, there's um, constant information sharing. Uh, you know, all of the past chefs 
um, have contacted me and like recommended, basically they all recommend like, enjoy it. They all say, enjoy it. It's like, it's overwhelming. It's the same thing we try and tell the athletes. Like the Olympics are like nothing you've ever been to before. So, but don't worry about that. <laughs> like enjoy it. It's like a think, don't think environment. I don't even know how to answer that question, but because like my answer is like, of course, of course, we're always learning from our last experience in the same way an Olympic sport performance, they, you know, they say they, they get, you know, sort of 5% better every Olympics. So does the mission team's services. So does, and, and that's in every role, you know, the chef's not just getting more informed um, and becoming a better utility player so are all the people whether they're in uh, transportation whether they're in outfitting logistics friends and family canadian olympic house all of these things we're always trying to figure out what are the best and best of class services that we can provide to the athletes at, at, at the next games we're not trying to provide the services that were best for the athletes at the last games we're like what is, what is going to be best and uh, most utilitarian for the athletes at the next games Thank you so much, Marnie. You can follow Marnie on Twitter at Marnie McBee on Insta. She's Marnie Mc2, that's the number two. And she's got a website, marniemcbean.ca. And we will have links to all of those in the show notes. Oh, man. I would like Marnie to be my chef. Mostly because, like, like, she could mentor me. She could mentor us and say, you can do it. I know. Between her and Emily Cook, we could rule the world. Right. But she was, in fact, when we spoke to her, and, and I, I, I am going to blow her cover, she was baking. <laughs> Which was great. Which was perfect, because I'm like, oh, you're a pastry chef. Now I understand. <laughs> but happy birthday, Marnie's mom. That's right. Making who's a getting cake. a pretty awesome cake. I know. All right, let's move on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. Speaking of sushi. <laughs> this is our segment where we hear what's going on with our past guests who are our team that we cheer for. Our segment is sponsored by PinCollector.com. PinCollector is the world's largest free online community for Olympic pin collectors. And it's a place where you can easily catalog, value, and show off your collection to all your friends. The catalog is huge. Right now it contains a good 26,000-some pins, and it's updated in real time, so you always have the most current information about what pins are out there and what the value is of them. It's a great platform also for buy, sell, and trading, and the rates on Pin Collector are lower than a lot of other online platforms. So if you collect pins and enjoy Olympic pin collecting, get yourself on pincollector.com now and sign up today. It's free. I will say that. It's free. And it's a lot of fun. It is fun. It is It is fun to go and see other people's collections and build your own. I've got my eye on some stuff. All right. Control yourself, Jill. I will try. Christmas is coming, people. Get yourself on Pin Collector. <laughs> Makes good Christmas presents. Our sustainability expert, MCAMP, Matthew Campelli, was invited to the International Labor Organization to contribute to the Commonwealth Secretariat's open-ended working group on sport. He also had an opinion piece published in Sports Business Daily called Sport Can Be a Model Industry on Climate Issues Now and Later. Congratulations, MCAMP. That's cool to be working with the ILO. That's pretty prestigious. Rock on, MCAMP. That's almost as good as spinning on your head. Right? Um, <laughs> Emily Cook has left the world of aerials coaching, and now she is the new athlete mentor manager for the Classroom Champs 
which is an organization that takes Olympians and partners them with classrooms and they do mentoring and teaching throughout the year. It's really cool. Charlie White is a member. Charlie White, yes. Has, that was classroom. the first time we came across this yes, is when we so talked to Charlie. Congratulations, Emily. That sounds super exciting. Our Kiwi Connection, Dr. Michael Warren, had a book review published in the Journal of Sport History, and he reviewed Australian rules football during the First World War. And he's got some new blogs on uh, Team New Zealand about about what's going on with the Olympic selection and all that, too. So check that out. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes. And the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant are on their way to announce at the Canadian Olympic Wrestling Trials this weekend, which will be in Niagara Falls. Because his home state of Minnesota, not cold and snowy enough. No, you got to escape to Canada. <laughs> all right, let's move on to other fun Olympic news. I don't so so gel. Yes. Is there any information on the uh, Olympic marathon? We've barely touched on this. I know. The, okay, so we have another chapter. This it's not quite the closing chapter in the saga of our Mara novella. But we've got some more answers this week from the IOC executive board meeting. So right now what they did was finalized the schedule. And they have decided to cluster all of the events together into four consecutive days. Because before they had been a little more spread out on the Olympic program. And I think the the women's marathon was a week before the men's marathon. So now they've clustered it all together in four days. So it's going to take up less time on the schedule and it's all going to be at the end of the games program so hopefully they'll be able to transfer support staff and things like that up to Sapporo to take care of this these events so on August and there should be excuse me there should yeah. be less disruption for Sapporo if it's all in that four exactly. days rather than that's, spreading that's it awesome. out over yes, the two weeks exactly so uh, August 6th will be the men's 20-kilometer race walk. That will be at 4.30 p.m. On the 7th will be the men's 50-kilometer race walk at 5.30 a.m. And then the women's 20-kilometer walk will be at 4.30 p.m. On the 8th, it will be the women's marathon at 7 a.m. And on August 9th, which is the closing day of the Olympics, will be the men's marathon at 7 a.m. I hope those marathoners run pretty fast because they got to get back to Tokyo for the closing ceremonies. Yes, that was a that was a thing because, as you remember from the last uh, segment of our Mara novella saga, the Tokyo organizers wanted to move the men's marathon off of the closing day because of those considerations. It's going to take time to go through doping. We've got to get all these people down to the closing ceremonies. We can't really get it all done one day. But in the uh, press conference that was held uh, today, which is Wednesday of this week, they said the the press uh, relations people from the IOC said, well, the the men's marathon is a critical part of the last day of the games. And it's tradition, so it, quote unquote, made sense to cluster around that event. Was John Coates involved in this press conference? I don't. No, he was not in the press conference. They were all very fluent in press relations ease, I would say. They know how to talk to the media. They've got got media training. They put John Coates in a corner for this one. (laughs) They also talked about the courses. So they're keeping the same designs that were in place from Tokyo. So the 20-kilometer race walk is going to have a one-kilometer loop that they'll have to go around 20 times. And then the the 50-kilometer race walk will have a two-kilometer loop. So they'll have to go around that 25 times. But what's making the Mara novella 
last a little longer than today is that they're not done finalizing the course for the marathon, which is great. For either marathon. Is it going to have the same course? Yeah, it should. The men's and the women's? Yeah. So the first half of the course is going to use a 20-kilometer loop. And the second, uh, which, which... Kit McConnell took this section and Kit. Oh, he's the, oh, I know him. He's yeah, my right. favorite. Oh yeah. He was fun. Cause the, 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 I think his name is Christophe Duby or uh, he's a French guy who does this. And he's like, I'm going to hand it off to Kit for the mar- the marathon. <laughs> he's <laughs> oh, the should... IOC sports director. Yeah. Okay. So Kit McConnell, the IOC sports director. But he does all the press conferences. Yes. He does this... all the press. Yes. So I totally have a crush on him. No, I know. I know. He's, he's a, a little easy on the eyes. B got an accent. That's really nice. Anyway. So he did say, that using this 20 kilometer loop will provide a legacy for the half marathon that's going to take place after the games and it sounded like Sapporo's never had a marathon before when in fact there is a marathon up there and it's not like they have anything to do and he did say at the beginning of which was great the he wanted to highlight the progress that's been made since the decision was taken by all of the parties together to move the road events to Sapporo I know, right? And you're Kids. just like, I sat there and I listened to that and I'm like, this is this is what you're telling yourself now, that we all decided this together. And they really sounded not thrilled that any other idea could be the truth, which is great because... Kid is gaslighting us. I know, I know. <laughs> and I am not okay with my imaginary IOC boyfriend gaslighting me. <laughs> but it was great because... Our friend Carlos Groman was there, and he asked a question. He asked, what kind of impact does it have on the credibility of the host cities? And basically said, you know, you moved the climate. You knew the climate before this all happened, and yet you moved the marathon on them. At the last minute. Yes, yes. Christophe Duby is the Olympic Games executive director. So he oversees the management and coordination of the youth and the youth Olympic Games. He jumps in and says, well, credibility is also built on consistency. And when you have one message, with, which is the athlete's safety and security first, I think we're being very consistent. And this is how we build credibility. They are just making stuff up now. Well, I know. Well, and he said, well, this was the first time there was this real live test. And it gave us a point in time and a reference. And, you know, they decided, everybody decided together that we're going we're gonna to have to move the marathon to create better conditions for the athletes. And no one can dispute that the IOC is standing for the ultimate conditions and the ultimate field and health and safety, or the ultimate field of play and health and safety for the athletes. No doubt about that. And this is how credibility is built over time. <laughs> and of course, I... I uh, tweeted Carlos a message on like, well, well, do you think that this would have happened if Doha didn't happen with the World Athletics Champs? He goes, yeah, I think that. Yeah, it's know. like, gee, um, what the IOC stands for is we don't want marathoners dropping dead in the middle of the Olympics. Thanks. Right. <laughs> so because then, of that, course, that image from Doha, mm-hmm. where runners were just collapsing left and right left a little bit of a bad taste in spectators' mouths. Right, right. But then more questions from the media were, you know, who's paying for this? Which, uh, you know, I love this question. And they did, and this does make sense, actually. So they did come back with 
Tokyo Organizing Committee already had a budget for the marathon. So they're just transferring that budget to what they have to do in Sapporo. But that okay. doesn't mean, you know, that makes perfect sense. So, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be any extra costs because you're going to have to transfer people up there and back and you have to arrange for hotels. But there's actually going to be some football matches in that area for the football tournament. So they've got relations with hotels already. So that helps. And they did say that one of the great benefits is that the course is there. Well, like they already have a marathon area. They've got the asphalt and structures are already present. You mean they have streets? Yeah, they have streets. And, and this is really where I thought like, oh, wow, you've been talking for a long time and you're just saying stuff. And he did say, well, they've got the asphalt. <laughs> and I don't know was if this, he was... Was this Kit or was this... I think this was Kit. Oh. <laughs> We're going to have to have a long talk when he comes home from this trip. <laughs> Kit, my imaginary but, IOC And then boyfriend. I thought, well, you know, maybe he's talking about the fact that, that Tokyo is trying to make these cooler streets and they're building them for the, the marathon when it was supposed to be in Tokyo. <laughs> it's just like, well, they have streets up in, up in Sapporo. All right. So we are not yet done with the Mara Novella because they haven't talked about the medal ceremony. They haven't talked about moving people and the hotels. And we've got to finalize the course, but that is coming. So they said it's been a great start great discussions having a good time <laughs> have they let john Coates out of the coat closet yet i don't know i don't oh, know man i don't know so okay but there were other questions about whether other events would get moved like open water swimming because that also was a troublesome test event where the water was very very warm and the IOC said, no, not yet. And we don't have data. That's what they said. We don't have data like we had data for the marathon. And I'm not sure if the data was accurate for water temperatures or what, but they right now don't have plans to move any other events. They've moved some up, like they moved up triathlon again, and they've moved up equestrian because they really want to get the equestrian events done by 11 o'clock for the horse's health. So... To be continued, I think, with the Marinovella. So, Jill, yeah. am I going to have to stay on Dan's couch in Paris? <laughs> I don't know, because nothing's really come up in our hotel novella saga. The IOC has said again that Paris is free to find its own hotel sponsor, but I'm really dying to know, like, where's T-Box staying? As you know, Dan's couch, probably open for T-Box, but we have no new update in that. However... Remember how the surfing competition has been out to bid and that there were five bids, four from different sections along the coast of France on the Atlantic side and then one in Tahiti. And T-Bach had said, wow, that's a long distance. And <laughs> turns out that the agency uh, France Press, the AFP, is reporting that Tahiti is the front runner to host surfing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know who it was, but somebody on our Facebook group brought up that this is almost like the Melbourne Stockholm oh, yeah, situation really, from 1956. Kind of, yeah, it really is. Where kind of. 
Right. So in 1956, because of the strict animal import laws, Mm -hmm. they couldn't have the equestrian in Melbourne. So they hosted it like two months earlier in Stockholm, which made no sense whatsoever. So this is kind of the same thing. It's like the the Olympics are in Paris, but we're going to have this one little competition on the whole other side of the world. Because the waves are there. Yeah. And they speak French there. So it's kind of Parisian. And we'll give you croissants. So we'll make it feel like you're in Paris. One of the great things about this is that Liam Morgan from Inside the Games asked about this at the press conference. And Today? Yes, at today's okay. press conference. He said, uh, so so what's up with this? T-Bach is on record as saying that we like to have the, the venues close together. Isn't this taking the new norm a bit far? And the response was, T-Bock has been very pragmatic, and he said, for equal conditions, we'll stay closer. Nothing to add here. Was Kit gaslighting me again? That's not Kit. That was Christoph again. So Christoph said, for equal conditions, we'll stay closer. Okay. We shall see. I want to see T-Bock in his Speedo in Tahiti. (laughs) On a surfboard? (laughs) Yeah, with... I don't know what they wear, and I don't know what Tahitian tradition is, so I'm going to stop there before I insult somebody else. (laughs) But yeah, that was just like, oh, wow, you just went there. So we'll see what happens with the the Parisian decision. It's It's all going to be for the health and safety of the athletes, though, Jill, that we're going, you know, 24,000 kilometers away. Right. All for health and safety. Right. I'll just leave it at that. Just like just like the IOC did. So mm-hmm. in other IOC news, they were asked today at this press conference if there was a timeline for 2030 and 2032 bids. Yes. Uh, because there's been in the news some pressure in Queensland to get our bid interest uh, solidified. So they uh, Queensland was going to decide by the end of December whether or not they will officially bid to host the 2032 Olympics. And there's a lot of support for that uh, from government representatives and other special interests, I'm sure. Well, didn't John Coates already tell us that the Olympics were going to be in Queensland oh, in yeah, 2032? Right? Yeah, but we found out today that there is no timeline for that bid yet. Oh, so they, yeah, they basically said, we don't have a timeline for 2030 and 2032 yet. So I, okay. I wish there had been a follow-up on, so what John Coates was saying earlier this year, how it's already sewn up. Not the truth, huh? They really did lock John Coates in the coat closet <laughs> for this IOC meeting. Wow. I know. I know. So oh, it was John. a good press conference today. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But it was nice to get some details about the marathon. And know that the saga is not over yet. My Mara novella has not had its final chapter. And we've got we've got more fun like next week or the week after because WADA will present its doping report to on on Russia to the IOC. Hashtag free John Coates. <laughs> it's the only way this is gonna get really good. <laughs> On that note, I think we will call it a show. We have to go uh, post some social media and use our new hashtag. Hashtag free John Coates. All right. Uh, well, let us know if you want Marnie to be your own personal chef. 
Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 53070fever. And we're Olim Fever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook. Oh, and we've got a new newsletter, too, that comes out on Tuesdays. And I talked about what we don't talk about on the show. Be sure to subscribe to that at our website, olimfever.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. This used to be my show. Do 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 do.